work that I've done, I've really seen a huge shift since 9-11 of the either some people sort of dead stop, you know, we don't want to work with the military, and others are just that actually there is a great necessity in understanding culture and understanding how the military works in areas in which to engage in some type of work, you know, work environment. But then again, people put limits. A lot of it is uh, beneficiaries of the population in which they serve. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. Today we're talking to two development professionals from DEXIS, Karen Walsh and Ron Morrison. They're here to talk about what DEXIS is, how DEXIS differs from other development organizations, what they do around the world, and what the connection is to civil affairs in the military. And now I'll turn to Bron. Bron, if you could please introduce yourself for the audience. Sure, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thanks for having us on. I'm the Senior Director for our Center on Security and Stabilization. My background is I started off in Peace Corps, uh, later went to work within uh, UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations, where I often was embedded with uh, UN military, uh, served in Cambodia, UNTAC, uh, El Salvador, Mozambique. I then returned to the U.S. and started working with USAID partners, International Foundation for Election Systems, and then with the private sector that are part, that are implementing partners with USAID and state. One is Creative Associates and DAI, and then uh, I served as the national senior, nas, sorry, the senior national security advisor to the president of Somalia on behalf of uh, the Department of State, and then landed at Texas about two and a half years ago. Wow. Okay. So was, do you think it was your interest in the Peace Corps and that experience that wanted you, you know, it would pique your interest in doing development work for your career? I never thought that I would work with the United Nations, and it was a bit of a serendipitous, like many things are, landing there. Um, and what I did with the UN, it definitely continued to pique my interest in working in the arena of post-conflict and conflict-affected countries, for sure. Great. Well, thanks, Ron. Uh, Karen, can you tell us about yourself? And likewise, thank you for having us on today. Um, I'm Karen Walsh, and I, too, started in Peace Corps. Um, from Peace Corps, then afterwards, I received my Master's in Public Health from Master's in Public Health. I then worked in refugee situations in Rwanda, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Uganda. Um, from them, came back to the States and started working on OFTA. I was working in OFTA Lab, Latin America and Caribbean. Uh, after that, this is my first engagement. My next part was going in as uh, I was working with IRG and we became department, uh, we became USAID personnel uh, during the Iraq War. So went in initially with ORHAS, which is where I started working with civil affairs directly with the 352. Um, and when they went out, the KPOC came out and supported the aid mission and then got out of that, did Afghanistan, um, you name it, and then started doing work with OTI, Office of Transition Initiative. Last couple of years, I was out in Ghana working with a food security program along the Burkina Bay uh, border, um, helping uh, bring uh, 25,000 women to become better uh, empowered economically so they could stave off any type of negative influences in the region, and then showed up with Dexit, and I'm now the Director of Stabilization 
Excellent. And I'm so glad that we're having this discussion because uh, we should have more guests like yourselves who cover down for uh, the third D. You know, and we often talk about defense, diplomacy, development. And a lot of the people who work in development are obviously the implementing partners and people on the ground or people uh, doing the back office work to support anyone in country doing development work and figuring out the programs um, for the host country. So really thank you for your time. I wanted to talk about um, what DEXIS is. And would you start by answering how would you say that DEXIS differs from other development organizations? Sure. This is Brian. DEXIS Consulting Group started uh, in 2001, and it engaged primarily in the monitoring and evaluation arena, and we've grown to have a specific expertise uh, serving not only USAID programs, but also security assistance and security cooperation uh, programming. We conduct what is now called the Assessment, Monitoring, and Evaluation, AM&E, on behalf of Department of State, which of course brings in the Department of Defense implemented programming, so both Title 10 and Title 22 programming. So inherent in our organization and expertise in monitoring and evaluation, and I think what makes us uh, distinctive is we serve across the platform of defense, diplomacy, and development in the AM&E, or what's called monitoring and evaluation area. And then secondly, our other uh, division is the implementation division of stabilization programming as well as agriculture and economic development. So what you find mostly in other development uh, firms is usually just the implementation side of things is an area of expertise, not both monitoring evaluation and the uh, development programming. And then Again, secondly, I'm very proud to say that we work across the three. Okay, great. And do you think that specialization has evolved based on the subject matter experts who have been in the DEXIS network, or was this a deliberate choice to focus on what you do now? It was a deliberate choice, and I think uh, early on, um, even before monitoring and evaluation started its explosion within the USAID arena. There's a recognition by our founder, um, here Desai, that in order to implement effective and agile uh, programming, you know, that's based on what they call collaborative, collaborative learning and analysis, and ensuring that our programming implementation is based on uh, lessons learned, which is really, you get that through your monitoring and evaluation programming. So I'm happy to say that we were engaged in this enemy work uh, even before the explosion within the USAID market. So much so that now you have small businesses that exclusively focus only on enemy. Yeah, so you were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. So this often happens, I think, especially in-country, but I just wanted to check, does DEXIS hire only Americans, or do you do work with a lot of no local nationals in-country? Everyone. Um, I mean, I think that it doesn't matter we have third-country nationals, and that's 
uh, non-American and not the local population. So we work with anyone with expertise. So if you have it, we'll work with you. Most of our programs are implemented by host country nationals, and that is overseen usually by one American and maybe two or so uh, third country nationals, meaning someone, let's say, from UK or it could be from you know a regional country or a European country. So it's, as Karen said, it's a mix, but I would say the majority is host country nationals. Okay. Right. So I think civil affairs forces and many people in the military understand that the perspective of a lot of NGOs and development staff is that they typically don't like to interact with the military. There's some culture clash. What has been your experience working with the military? I think for, for me, John, right now, I just got to stop you right there in a little sense of, um, you know, uh, understanding the development world. And this is just a little thing just on um, for most of our people who work with, say, the development world is that the more granular that you are about talking about NGOs, contractors, the private sector, you know, because everybody is quite different of how they do it. It's not a one-stop, you know, one um, ideology or anything else like that. It all depends on, you know, what's the goal of the organization itself. So if you are an NGO or not, in our speak as a nonprofit that would go out and work in the field, a nonprofit may or may not uh, work with military. It's a discussion that they're going to have their board and their members. Um, you look at places like IMC where they do a lot of medical care and the right forefront working with the military all the time because they're combat focused. Um, MSF, you know, they're going to be working doctors without borders are right along there because it's in the environment in which they work. Now, some NGOs and nonprofits globally may not want to work with you because they're state-based agriculturally and want to just work exclusively with farmers and are not, say, in a conflict-prone area. So it's different. Um, now, if you look at contractors, the private sector that works alongside, I see there is a great shift that's happened um, because of the areas in which USAID and Department of State have been going in and asking private sectors to work on contracts to be in those arenas. So we really see, I mean, I the work that I've done, I've really seen a huge shift since 9-11 of being either some people will put a dead stop, you know, we don't want to work with the military, and others are just that actually there is a great necessity in understanding the culture and understanding how the military works in areas in which to engage in some type of, work, you know, work environment. But then again, people put limits. A lot of it is uh, beneficiaries of the population in which they serve. So if they feel that there's security risk to their beneficiaries, they will pull back and say, look, security-wise, we can't have you engage in this area. We'll still talk to you, but we've got to figure out a way in which our, the security of those with whom we work is the number one priority so that they don't become targets themselves if we're in these environments that are, are conflict-winning or, or in the middle of conflict. Uh, so on that side, big change. I've worked with the military since, you know, it's interesting Prior to 9-11, the only people that we saw in uniform on the African continent were um, the Marines inside of an embassy. No one would be out in the continent in huge issues. It would have been the UN or the local, um, the local government military supporting the UN mission um, for, say, UNHCR. But this huge change, so it's evolving. And I think, Ron, you can add to this, too. It's how everyone works. It's changing, and it will continue given what we see on the ground. And that's probably the best part of, a, a, you know, in a learning environment is we're going to keep figuring out how to do this together and do it well. 
Ken mentioned, there were few folks that really worked alongside the military prior to 9-11. I think now, if you were to survey most development practitioners, I'd say 90% now have either worked alongside or been part of a military operation in terms of logistics at a minimum, um, leveraging the incredible capability that the military offers in terms of uh, lift and uh, transportation. In terms of CMOCs, of course, those prior to 9-11 that were involved in humanitarian assistance certainly had experience uh, in Rwanda and other places. Again, I think that within the nonprofit humanitarian world, there's a recognition, again, of the incredible organizational capacity of the military. And in terms of stabilization, there is more and more, I think, uh, experiences of embedding, meaning embedding development practitioners inside of a civil affairs uh, operation or within SOF. Um, and we ourselves, Texas, had placed uh, an expert within a SOF element in Somalia, and it was through an OTI program. And the intent, of course, is to help deconflict some of the uh, programming in an area of the country um, and to help coordinate a bit better so that the military operation is not misapplying their assistance. And of course, the intent within the soft element is more around shaping for a future offensive. But we, of course, as a partner of both USAID and of the 3Ds, understand the objective of the DOD, and we certainly understand the importance. That's great to hear. And you threw out a term, which leads me to my next question. You said CMOC. Uh, for the CA listeners, that's the, obviously the Civil Military Operations Center. The military is certainly well known for its acronyms and jargon, but I know that the NGO community also has shorthand as well. So what do you suggest CA forces should do to learn the language used in the development community? Yeah, a good point. 
Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Karen Walsh and Bron Morrison. They're from Dexas Consulting Group. Dexas Consulting Group advances security and prosperity through gold standard management services. They work with organizations that promote stability, resilience, and prosperity through social and peacekeeping programs across agriculture and economic growth, stabilization, and security sector assistance. When we come back, we'll speak with Karen and Braun about the services that Dexis provides in technical areas, its approach to stabilization and conflict management, and some more connections with civil affairs. We'll be right back. Check out the civil affairs call for issue papers. The deadline to submit a paper is August 28th. Civil affairs can find better integration as a force for influence, collaboration, and competition for convergent threats and challenges for multi-domain and information operations, now called joint all-domain operations. As the nation's warrior diplomats, the CA Corps must modernize especially for gray zone competition and foster a learning organization. It must reinforce supported command understanding of CA core competencies and capabilities at tactical and operational levels. It must seize opportunities to be a greater force for influence through national strategic initiatives like the Stabilization Assistance Review and the Global Engagement Center. And it must help build an industrial base in applied social sciences and related technologies. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to submit originally written issue papers. The deadline is August 28th. For more information, including paper guidelines, visit civilaffairs, all one word, assoc.org. Welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. Karen and Braun, I wanted to build on this discussion and talk about the services that Dexis provides. Um, you have several technical areas. Uh, we mentioned at the uh, early part of the show that you work in stability, resilience, a lot of focus in agriculture and economic growth. Um, you're both working in stabilization, security sector assistance. So which areas do you think most closely apply to this, the mission of civil affairs forces in the military? Uh, and where's the intersection between DEXIS and civil affairs? This is Bron. Um, I would offer that, you know, the stabilization uh, mission is most aligned with the civil affairs mission. Obviously, since 9-11, that's been what used to be called phase one through four. The Intent also, though, within the counterterrorism objectives also uh, align with our services as it applies to non-kinetic programming. Uh, the shaping part of CT operations. I also would offer that along with civil affairs, we also work to support uh, information operations, which I know is another branch, but. Um, do a lot of strategic communications for MISO programming as well. Great. Yeah, that's good to hear because we, CA forces, work closely with uh, psychological operations and information operations. In fact, on the reserve side, they're within the same command. Right. And, and I also think that a lot of the stuff that we do, um, in, uh, part of our enemy stuff is that we go out uh, on SFAS and do a lot of that work to see how people are engaging and not only from a performance, but a result. Standpoint. Um, I think one of the interesting things as 
from prior experience um, and also what we've seen that works is just that ability to um, sit down with groups and to talk to them about, you know, if the, how long is your deployment? What are you doing? Is this a three to six month uh, deployment? What are you thinking? You know, what are your objectives? And if you're looking at those development objective goals or you want to engage in the community, what is realistic? What is something that you can plan? You know, how do you make, how do you make a team successful? And oftentimes, <clears throat> we see that the very successful teams do a lot of the, the preparatory work beforehand. Um, when Ron and I were working at GAI, we had teams that would go in and out of Sri Lanka, and we had our OTI program out there. And it, what was great was that because you had people who understood the development world and understood that the contractors were the ones that support OTI, Office Transition Initiatives, that they came actually to DAI to talk to our group of how they could be more successful working alongside of them. They got the okay from OTI to come and talk to us, but it was that understanding of the people on the ground working with the program and how do they, how could we work together in a great, you know, a synergistic way. And it, so the team that did all that preparatory work and reached out, it was incredibly successful and they got a lot of things done because we handed them the low-hanging fruit. Now the teams that weren't successful in Sri Lanka and actually got pulled was when they decided to operate outside of what the uh, ambassador thought was acceptable and they got PNG. It's understanding how that works and the work, the work of who's on the ground, how to work with them, are they effective, So that's a good point. I want to build on or go back to that. The term PNG, persona non grata. Can you describe what you know? How badly a team has to screw up essentially for the embassy to kick you out of the country, um, <laughs> and how you're saying that uh, to avoid that, uh, go for the low hanging fruit and, and provide you know follow the guidance of the country team and uh, the partners who are already there. Yeah, I, I would just. What Karen was saying is, you know, in most of these post-conflict countries, the Office of Transition Initiatives has a presence, and that presence is through contractors. So meeting with the implementing or contracting partner on the ground will immediately give you a kind of the level of atmospherics that they can provide is a bit mind-boggling because the comprehensive nature of Office of Transition Initiatives is such that by visiting the headquarters, you will be briefed on a database of the grants that are being implemented, and therefore you can avoid uh, replicating in not only thematically or in geographically programming. And, and so I, I'm not so sure of what's required to get PNG'd. I, Karen can offer that more. Uh, I know it's not terribly... Uh, frequent, but I do think that sometimes CA units will get criticized for not having an impact, and I think they can avoid that by seeking out organizations, particularly through the country team of USAID's Office of Transition Initiative, and or just talking with the AID mission in general, because often there are stabilization programs that are done after OTIs in a country. So that will help you avoid being seen as not necessarily delivering programs that are with big impact. Right. I, I think John, the only thing that I, I want to talk about with 
how do you get PNG? So a lot of it comes, and these are just some suggestions not to do, would be that if you're going to be in plain clothes, that you don't identify yourself as a development worker, or that you're aligned that way, that, you know, it, you know, it all depends on how you're getting inserted into the country and the work, but a lot of it is, you know, um, that civilian-military divide. Um, with all the stuff that we do um, on the ground, we're open and transparent with our partners because we don't want anyone to be confused that we're doing anything but development work. So, and I think if you misrepresent yourself, that can be a question for, that goes back to the data from uh, the ambassador gets told that um, how you're representing yourself on the ground isn't uh, what was stipulated in your terms with, you know, having a debt represent you coming into country. Other things that if you go against, if, they, if you're working with the military that we've seen and that they feel that you're surveilling them because you're kind of in work with communities that don't want you to, whereas, um, and that could be another reason as well. So those are just two little examples, but hopefully there's not that many, I agree, but they, um, you'll get, I'll say it this way, the PNG side is more from ever working with other partners. That once you maybe perhaps you haven't been um, a good partner on the ground or demanding or doing things that were, you were told, please don't do this or don't come to our community, then the equity partner on the ground will just, you know, will close off ties and won't answer your phone calls anymore. Okay. So I wanted to get to uh, the DEXIS approach for stabilization and conflict mitigation. Each area is just incredibly complex and, and difficult to succeed in, but nonetheless, we do it, right? There's a good reason why DEXIS and others are working in stabilization. What, what is the DEXIS approach for it? How do you even start? We have to understand that I think also the government, uh, U.S. government has revealed through their uh, stabilization assistance review Stabilization programming is inherently political, and in a number of these countries, the politics are incredibly complex and even shifting within a country from region to region. And so for us, uh, like many though, but for us, we base it on research and analysis and ensuring that all of our programmings are informed by granular level research and analysis. Meaning that when we get into a country, we know that we are not the experts necessarily, uh, even remotely, <laughs> compared to those on the ground that uh, are host country nationals. But in order to have a neutral uh, viewpoint, we engage with research firms that also offer a broad ethnic representation as well as sound political science. Uh, methodologies to ensure that when we go into a particular region, we know the who, what, where, when, and how, and the PMC, you know, the political, military, economic, social, and information atmospherics. Um, and Karen, I, I hand it over to you. Sure. I, I think that one of the, um, Brian and I have just been going around different um, places, and, and what I think is the absolute critical thing is that we aren't the experts, but we're going to talk to everyone. There's no one we don't want to talk to. Um, getting in meetings, having conversations, being directly listening to people, and not coming with a "oh, this is the way it should go." Because part of the, the that idea that development is not a science; it's an art. You will always learn new things. You'll hear stuff. That political dynamic is 
could be a daily one. It could be as strong as regional, ethnic, gendered. It could be um, the weather could impact things. Look at what COVID is doing right now. I mean, we're looking at different countries of what that impacts from uh, governance role. What is that going to do for security? What is that going to do for outreach to those without a voice? So, I mean, how things change on such a rapid um, basis. But most of it for us is you need to be on the ground and, and asking these questions. And it's that human network that building over decades of interaction of people that you've had um, and say is Bond going to X country, she'll, her first thing is like, oh, who do I know? Who's on the ground? Who's working programs? Can we go meet with them? You know, how do we how do we do all of that work? And sometimes that's the limit for the military because you don't have that ability to go out there and talk to a million people because of the constraints in which you're operating under. But for us, if we don't have all of that information, we're going to be making incorrect you know, um, assumptions on our side. We've got to be a lot more open to everyone's opinion matters. Yeah, exactly. Lisa, I want to ask you one final question here, and, and that's what recommendations do you have for civil affairs forces to focus on training? For example, should we, based on your experience working with CA forces, should CA forces become better versed in technical areas or foreign languages, uh, regional studies, or something else like understanding the, the languages, the foreign languages, Karen, you talked about, starting with Army and uh, SOF and civil affairs, and then maybe adding development? There's so many suggestions, John. I don't know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about maybe a, a country where you worked um, with CA forces in the last couple of years. What added value did the CA team bring? Do you think that their human interaction or technology, was there any technology platform that they used uh, that was very helpful? What's the added value of CA forces bringing to the table when interacting with development firms like Dexas? Um, and what were their gaps where you thought CA forces should have been better and therefore uh, we could focus more training on that? on sort of the history of the country and the cultural mores and, you know, the regional studies aspect. But I think what's missing in what we, both Karen and I, have often done pro bono is to go down to Fort Bragg and give them the current operating environment picture. I think that's the missing piece of a of, uh, training program. And while bringing down a USAID foreign service officer or civil uh, officer can be helpful. I really believe that having uh, implementing partner that's operating on the ground in country can give a, not only a snapshot of the operating environment, but who are the people that you need to meet with upon arrival and giving them the actual contact information and a short overview of their uh, scope of work. Because without that kind of granular uh, information, it's going to take a while for you to get up to speed because it's overwhelming, you know, in countries that are, let's pick Somalia, um, there's an enormous amount of organizations that work in Somalia. And I think unless you have uh, an orientation and a bit of a, a handoff of, of contacts, it, it would take you a very long time within a six-month rotation to get up to speed. So that's what I really believe 
these would be very helpful. So I want to add to Ron, uh, you're talking, and I agree, that's that the initial understanding, you know, and uh, so that you're not walking in blind, okay. you know, to contact. The other thing I, I see is that there's just not enough time to explain good development. What is development? What's a grant? What's a project? What's an activity? How do you do it? How do you, how do you become successful? What's, what's attainable? I think you have a lot of training for people who work in surf funds. You have all this stuff from the past. You know, how much is an ODACA funding? All this other stuff. You know, you're there three to six months. How are you going to be successful? What, what are things that are actually real? What can you actually do in your time frame given what your priorities are from, you know, higher headquarters? What, how do you fit into that scope of work? How do you fit into an understanding of what you need to do and how do you, how do you plan to be successful? So you want to give money, you want to do a Metcap, Metcap, those are easy things, but there's so much more that you could do to further where you're going. And I think part of the problem with CA is the, the constant rotation is a question for all teams from thought, anybody in thought. It's like the, you know, no one wants to trust the group before them. Um, they all want to start up and do their own thing. It's like, where's the continuity current? Where's the anything that you can keep building on success from the, their prior iteration? And if you're all one team, why are we still not going towards whatever? You know, agree. Priorities do change. Things get shifted. But, you know, at least know how to build on what was previously done and either extend, you know, input more money or more people or more effort. And then you could, your scope can change, but at least you're still going in the right direction. Or whatever that is based on what you're supposed to do. You're a thousand points of light, but nothing's ever coordinated. So how, how would you look at doing things differently? Karen, Bron, I think that's great feedback. Thank you very much for sharing it. I hope the listeners will take that to heart and uh, anyone who's developing the training or preparing a team to go overseas uh, should do their homework and connect with as many development professionals like yourselves as possible. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. We have Karen Walsh and Bron Morrison. They're both from Dexas. The Dexas Consulting Group advances security and prosperity through gold standard management services. They work with organizations that promote stability, resilience, and prosperity through social and peacekeeping programs across agriculture and economic growth, stabilization, and security sector assistance. You can find more information about Texas at DexasOnline.com. Karen and Braun, thank you so much for being on the One Pit CA podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like so the 1CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the 1CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on the www.1capodcast.org. Again, that's www.1capodcast.org. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners and allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. Again, that's www.unomiajournal.com. If you're not a member yet, visit the main CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. 
Starting with cadets or midshipmen, membership is only $10 a year. We then have our basic annual membership at $40 per year and two years at $60 or finally a three-year membership for only $80. Our most popular and best value option is a lifetime membership at a one-time price of $200. Be a member and don't miss out. 2020 is a big year with transformational changes underway. Lots of new opportunities for members. Don't miss out. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.